you'd widen that gap. Just the poor would have disabled, diseased babies and rich with designer babies. Welcome to the Diary of a Researcher, where we unearth controversies, discoveries, and address the uncomfortable topics. Whether you're in academia or industry, professor or student, these are the things worth knowing to give you that slight edge in your field. I am your host, Matthew O'Neill. Test tube babies. Is science meddling where it shouldn't? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Akila Sami, a freelance SciComm researcher and content administrator for Publit. Hi, everyone. So, since the first baby in 1978, over 8 million babies have been born through IVF. And if we all look closely, we'd know someone besides the countless celebrities who have been through the process. So firstly, why is this topic important? So I think it's important to recall the history of this technique as it's so common and accepted now. Very unlike its beginning, we forget what our science ancestors went through. There were implications, but the technique from a science perspective has aged so beautifully. And with any new technique, and 40 years isn't old in science, awareness is always essential for newer methods to come and just progress in general. Okay, so how did all this start? Well, as you mentioned earlier, in 1978, Louise Brown, she was the first IVF baby and she was born in England around 44 years ago and is still alive and well today. And a fun fact about this whole scenario is that everyone commonly refers to them as test tube babies, but the actual fertilization took place in a petri dish. Ah, the petri dish baby. Yeah. So her mom had blocked fallopian tubes and tried to conceive naturally for nine years. Nowadays, after a year, if so much, you go straight on to fertility treatment. So the IVF procedure was developed by three doctors, scientists. Um, so it was Patrick Steptoe, Robert Edwards, and Jean Purdy. Um, Purdy was the first to see her embryonic cells dividing, which is very exciting just thinking about it. And as the only surviving partner, Edwards was awarded the 2010 Nobel Prize for his work in medicine. There were also some others involved, like Sister Muriel Harris and Howard and Georgiana Jones, who helped Edwards with the IVF process in 1965. And it is this husband-wife duo that brought it back to America when they opened their own IVF clinic in 1980. And to match the success back in England, they followed every detail, like avoiding fertility drugs and doing the implantation only at night, which sounds funny now, but it was new and they had to try it, and nothing worked for the first year. Being a new and untested technique, no one was sure about the ideal process, so they decided to develop their own protocol using fertility drugs to stimulate egg production. And they did this when IVF research in American science was at the periphery, especially when they had a failed attempt in 1973 in a New York hospital. So when did America get their first Petri dish baby? So their first Petri dish baby was 
Around three years later, the pioneer parents, Judy and Roger Carr, they had quite a story. So she had her fallopian tubes removed following a series of ectopic pregnancies. And while she was recovering from the removal of her second fallopian tube, she received a pamphlet of the Joneses' new clinic. And the rest was secretly history from here. Um, she had no idea of the successful case in England. She had nothing to lose. She had just been told in her 20s that she would never have children. And in December 1981, just after Christmas, Dr. Howard Jones stepped into a conference room and uttered, it's a girl and Elizabeth Jordan Carr was born the first IVF baby in America. And like the first baby in England, it was via cesarean. The only difference was that they used fertility drugs on Judy Carr. It's a girl. They are magical words. But you mentioned secret history. What do you mean by that? So when the first American baby was conceived, they had to keep it a secret because right before in France, there was an IVF miscarriage. And while miscarriages do happen in normal pregnancies, the media will just unfairly tie the two together. Um, so after the triumph of getting pregnant, you are still subjected to the risk, general risk in even a normal pregnancy. And when the cars did an ultrasound, the baby's head was small, so they had to keep it quiet from the press. Fortunately, it all turned out fine. And in England, for Louise, the doctors tried to keep it a secret, but the parents were so excited. Um, they had concerns about defects that you can pick up beforehand. And they didn't want this to get out because it would have killed off the research. The blame would have been placed on the technique. The journalists caught wind and besieged the hospital. So Dr. Stepto originally scheduled the operation for the following day, but changed his plans to outwit the journalists. The press got used to seeing him leave in his white car. So when they saw him drive away that evening, they assumed he was done for the night, but he came back and that's how they did the procedure in the night. Fascinating. And were the babies healthy? Yes. So from the moment they were born, Dr. John Webster, who helped deliver Louise, recalls that they didn't have to resuscitate her at all. The pediatrician who examined her for any defects didn't find any. Louise and her sister, who they also conceived through IVF four years later, and by then the procedure had caught on. She was the fourth year in the world. They both went on to have babies by conceiving naturally. Even Elizabeth from America, she went on to conceive naturally. Now, I've been seeing multiple births. Like there was one mother who carried eight babies to full term. And is that healthy? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, Octomom. And even though she had the babies, they were all healthy and fine. Um, no, it's not healthy for many reasons. One of them just being sanity. It's eight babies. So in 2007, they started a campaign to prevent these sorts of things happening. So it's called the One at a Time campaign, which was launched to reduce multiple births. 
In the 90s, they would transfer more than one embryo just to increase the chances of success. And the rate of multiple births was 28%. The campaign reached its goal of 10%, but has even dropped further now to 6%. So now single embryo transfer is a standard practice, and so too are frozen embryos. Okay, so besides infertility, why is IVF an option? I've seen people, and I know people without fertility issues, using IVF. Well, now women are becoming more career-driven, which entails delaying pregnancy, allowing people to start families later on in life. Some people even come to the decision later. Um, It enables patients with different partner types or no partners to even have genetically linked families. Wow, now for the juicy bit, the ethical and religious considerations. So there will always be critics and you would think it will be religious only, but both scientists and theologians criticize the treatment. Um, One was concerned about safety, the next was about the unnaturalness of the procedure. But at no point was the baby ever criticized, just the doctors and scientists. Um, As the decades passed, the medical facts about IVF relieved most people's fears about the procedure's safety. IVF gained moral acceptance too, even from most practicing faiths. I think the only thing the critics held on to is that Louise's mother, Leslie, it's her awareness of the procedure. Understandably so, because as mentioned in the first podcast, patients being unknowingly injected with cancer cells, just so scientists can study the natural cause of a disease, it's wrong to do this. So again, it sounds like the lack of consent was the misconduct and not actually the technique. Yeah, we have moved past all those concerns and now there are governments even offering assisted funding for IVF to help infertile couples. I mean, that is great to hear that people can get help, but where do you see all this heading? So this could head in either of two ways and um, I'll address it hand in hand. So. It's a topic that seems pretty normal now, but decades ago, this was not the case. Success rates were single digits. Now it's nearly 50% and improving depending on age and health. Additionally, the use of donor sperms and eggs is becoming increasingly common and women who are unable to carry a pregnancy are now able to use gestational carriers. So we have surrogacies now. And the question arises is this external womb. And technically, it is external to the mother, but what about being entirely external to the human body? Would there be a point where the female body isn't used anymore? Um, Yes, when this technique first came out, they asked the patriarch of Venice, whose only concern seemed to be women being used as baby factories. And as we see now, this might be the least of his concern because glass chambers might be used. Like, there's a new technique recently I learned about IVG. So far, they just took skin cells, brought them back to the stem cell stage, then guided them to become either an egg or a sperm, and then they followed the normal IVF route from here. 
I'm not sure how people feel about this. And as a scientist, it's cool. You can offer someone who has just removed the entire womb a chance to have a genetic offspring. You don't have to inject yourself with hormones. It's such an easy pathway that then raises the concern of embryo farming. In 2017, there was also these Chinese scientists successfully edited the genes of a human embryo to repair disease-causing mutations. Again, quite remarkable, but alarming. Even though it's a long way from clinical use, more controversy lies ahead. How, how so? I mean, that is a huge milestone. So first, anything that is new is always greeted with caution, and the controversy was safety, in which they showed it could be done safely. But then concerns drew around creating superhumans with super strength and intelligence. In this circumstance, the rich would be able to pay for super babies, and the poor would have no choice about their disabled offspring. So now you'd widen that gap, just the poor would have disabled, diseased babies and rich with designer babies. Um, There was a recent one with a three-parent baby. So how will this affect the family dynamics as well? These are things that we need to keep in mind. And as I mentioned before, with the glass chambers, very recently they grew an embryo with a brain and a heart. There was this massive uproar in the media, and rightly so. However, while the media misleadingly used pictures of a human embryo, it was when you read further, you realize they used mouse cells. Probably they just didn't have any pictures of a mouse embryo to put up. But for the moment, there's nothing to worry about. Um, this three-parent baby, you, you, you'll need to elaborate for me. Oh yeah, sure. So it was this Jordanian couple who kept having children dying as toddlers and it was because the mom carried a disease in her mitochondrial DNA. If you can pick and choose an egg or embryo here, they will all still have the same mitochondrial DNA content. So it's and it's only passed from the mom. So they went to this US doctor who stopped mitochondrial disorders using the three parent technique. He used an egg without a nucleus, inserted the mom's nucleus, and fertilized it with the dad's sperm. The third parent is the donor egg with the mitochondrial DNA alone, and the baby was born in 2016. Healthy, normal, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get that now. So is there anything to prevent or control this from taking a bad turn? While policies are not my forte, there are so many things to consider that every decision do have a chain reaction. Would banning help? Because you'd have to ban science, innovation on the whole. This could cause an underground lab just just doing it. Countries are going to create superhumans for wars, etc. Um, like with test tube babies, progress was decelerated by controversy and funding limitations in the U.S. While they fell behind, over a dozen other children were born in England and Australia using the technique. Even with the three-parent baby, they couldn't do it in the U.S. They had to go to Mexico. So not only would limit to editing need to be regulated, but also equality of the procedure. It would be nice not to be a BRCA mutation carrier and eradicate hereditable diseases. 
Um, there's so much to consider, especially with the laws. Everyone is always concerned about the science and the ethics that laws get left behind. We have to consider what would one do with embryos, eggs, and sperm if the subject dies. Especially with the embryo, in some states, the embryo can sue parents. This happened with Sofia Vergara. And in each state, as a matter of fact, each country as well, the definition of an embryo is different. The rights of an embryo is different. Embryos have been mixed up in the past. And while some parents were able to get back their biological offspring after being carried by someone else, some have not been able to. And these are things that concern not only the creationists, but also scientists. Um, and you can't deny human nature. These things need to be addressed. Yeah, there's a lot to consider there. So one more question. And I'm familiar with the procedure. Uh, like I said earlier, I have some friends. So uh, I know that you can get embryos genetically tested and you can also choose a disease-free embryo. So why would you genetically need to engineer a disease-free one? So that's a good question because firstly, having that option and that selection is what is preventing the introduction of gene editing of embryos. Policymakers are saying that there's already an alternative already an option towards the same outcome. However, this also means that some embryos get thrown away and not everyone is happy about that. So if you can correct the diseases and save every embryo, um, you'd have more embryos to work with. And to add to this, you would usually only deselect for one mutation. With gene editing, you can correct for multiple diseases, which can get ugly when you start curating other features. And is it also the case that some people may not have embryos that are disease-free? Exactly. So you can give these parents who have no options at all an option. Wow. Thank you. Um, that certainly is a lot to consider. Um, truly enlightening. Very, very uh, interesting subject. And I'm sure it's going to be one which will be around for a long time. Now, I hope everybody has enjoyed this as much as I have. And as usual, even though we've done the work, we still want you to have a read yourself. We've included some links to further reading around the topic. And also, if you want to enjoy this ad-free, subscribe or get the public app subscription that includes this and much more. It summarizes scientific publications in audio and text, so you can listen on the go, in the lab, etc. And currently, there are over 100 papers to choose from on various topics. Now, it's stuff you usually would or wouldn't listen to, but it does help fulfill that essential need to read in academia. 